Welcome back, everyone. This is the Modern Life Podcast. My name is Tabby, and I am joined today by Ruth Mitchell to talk about Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Ruth is also the author of the book Deleted, a sci-fi action novel that takes place in the near future. The protagonist, Lucy, discovers that she has been deleted from the memories of her loved ones. Now she alone has to find out who did this and how to stop the mind hacker from erasing her memory as well. You can also find Ruth on Instagram at literally.ruth.mitchell. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Modern Life Pod and also find all our episodes on our website, modernlifepodcast.com. And if you're in the mood for more Gaskell, check out our past episode on North and South. Thanks for listening. This fellowship will give me a bit more cash than I need to live on. You're welcome to half of it. Just while you're waiting for your poems to burst forth upon an astonished world of culture. What a good fellow you are. I'm not sure I deserve such a brother. But I'm extremely glad I have one. I'm here with Ruth today. Ruth, how are you doing? I'm good. Ruth, what is your modern thought for us today? I just finished watching, well, last week, watching WandaVision on Disney Plus. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's very different. It's one of those shows that's fun. You don't know where it's going. But I felt like it was this amazing metaphor for grief and loss and the relationship between grief and creativity. There's a beautiful quote in the movie or in this one episode where he says, what is grief if not love persevering? I read a few articles on that. It said that all the screenwriters let out a gasp when they heard that and thought, dang it, I wish I wrote that. I felt the same. I just loved the idea that out of loss comes creativity. I know that's true for me that I always wrote, but then after my mom died, I took more time writing. Like it just kind of spurs you on. I actually thought of this, what we're going to discuss today, Wives and Daughters, because Elizabeth Gaskell started writing after the death of a child. And that's kind of what pushed her to be a writer. And, and I, well, also I was talking to another writer over the weekend who she told me her story about how she started after her father started writing after her father died. And I just hear this story over and over again, how something bad happens to someone and they are pushed to doing creativity. And, you know, we've just had 2020, we're, we're hitting almost the one year mark of everything being closed. And it's really not been a fabulous year. But there are these stories of people who've taken this time and done some really great creative stuff with it. And I, I don't know, I get hope out of that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And also that quote, it just reminded me um, just now of something that Liam Neeson said after he lost his wife, um, because he says people always say that love hurts. And he's like, like, no, love is the good part. Love is not the part that hurts. And it's worth it's worth everything, even when you lose it. That feeling is something you have to hold on to, even when you're faced with grief. Yeah, instead of like ignoring or trying to avoid it, beautiful things come from yeah. it. So my modern thought is about the royals. Um, oh, <laughs> we fun. were talking about it, you and I, in our book club online. And they just had um, the interview with Oprah, Harry, and Meghan. And honestly, I haven't seen it. Um, but I was just thinking about that concept of ownership of a celebrity and how the royals really have mm. become 
like it's a brand like it's a brand that needs to be sold that people need to buy into and have loyalty to that's something in marketing people will always tell you like there needs to be like a 10 out of 10 brand loyalty and it's this weird effect that's like happening right now and totally working where people have these allegiances to the royal family or certain members of the royal family I don't know. It's just this weird psychological phenomenon because like you don't know these people, but also <laughs> you've been like fed all this stuff of like buying into the brand. So like it's obviously working. I don't know. I was just thinking of the celebrity culture and royal culture and the partially like the dehumanization that goes along with putting somebody on a pedestal like that. I like that. The dehumanization when someone's a celebrity they're like not a person right, anymore yeah and i think it damages us in some way because then people feel okay saying things about these people that i don't think they'd say to someone they know or i hope not that's so true yeah but yeah that's it we are ready to get into wives and daughters it was the last novel written by Elizabeth Gaskell. She died in 1865, sadly, before she could pen the final chapters to this Victorian masterpiece. Um, this quote-unquote everyday story takes place in the 1830s in a provincial English neighborhood and spans over multiple years, centering on Molly Gibson, the local doctor's daughter. Mr. Gibson is a widower and decides to marry again so that Molly can have a mother figure in her life. He settles on the former governess of the local great aristocratic family, the Cumners. Molly's new stepmother, however, turns out to be a shallow woman, but at least her daughter Cynthia forms a close bond with Molly. Other important characters are the Miss Brownings, two kind-hearted spinsters who were close friends with Molly's deceased mother, and the Hamleys, a gentry family of reduced circumstances, and their two sons, Osborne and Roger. Their mother's death causes a rift between the oldest son and his father, but the two brothers are as close and loyal to each other as ever. Molly accidentally discovers that Osborne is secretly married, and he reveals to her that he has fathered a son and heir. She also develops feelings for Roger, but he proposes to Cynthia before going away on a journey of scientific discovery. So we are going to be discussing the book and the 1999 series. There is another adaptation that was made in 1971, but I could find no trace of it, so I don't even know if it exists anymore. And Ruth, you reread this book for the podcast, and you kept saying to me while you were rereading it, like, wow, this is one of my, if not my favorite book. And my question is, is that something that really cemented itself this time through? Or was that like an instant favorite? Like the first time you read this book, you were like, this is it. I think the first time I read it, I loved it. But I was, I actually remember perfectly the moment no one warned me that Gaskell died before she finished the book. <laughs> so I'm on a mission. I tell everyone, read this book. But also she died before she finished the last chapter. Because <laughs> I remember I was on an airplane. I went into it blind. I hadn't seen the miniseries. And, uh, you know, you're, it's just that moment in a book where you know everything's going to work out. And you're really looking forward to that last chapter where you see it work out. And you turn the page and it's like, sorry, dear reader, the author died. <laughs> and I just, oh, I, and it really bugged me because I was on an airplane. Because if I had been in my own private residence, I would have thrown the book. But I was just like seething by myself. I was on a flight by myself and I was so disappointed. So, you know, it took me a little bit to get over that. So I loved it. I've always said it's a favorite. But I think this reading, particularly because we had just, I read Mansfield Park in the fall. 
And I was comparing this book as I read it to Mansfield Park, and it has a lot of, I mean, it's definitely a level of fan fiction of Mansfield Park. And it's so much better. It's so much better. It's it's so great. And then I just love it. And there's a lot of things in this book that I can really relate to. Like Molly has curly hair, and there's a part in there where her step, her new stepmom's mm-hmm. like trying to like brush out her curls. And anyone who has curly hair has experienced that where people just treat you like, you know, you'd look nice if you got rid of your curls and it's just so frustrating. I just really love it. I it's, it's everything a book should be. It has great humor, really great characters. There is a lot of pathos in it, Mm. but, but it's overall, you know, it ends happily, which I like, especially, I feel like, I feel like this year I've really turned towards happy endings because it's been a discouraging year. So. Yeah, that's true. I, I tried to look up if there's any evidence that Gaskell was inspired by Mansfield Park. And I couldn't find anything on that, like, you know, like a letter she wrote, like, oh, I just read Jane Austen or something like that. But there were so many blogs online who were comparing the two books. So I feel like there must have been something there because so many people are catching all the comparisons between Fanny and Molly. But yeah, it's it's, I guess, just conjecture. Yeah, I think the biggest one is that Mrs. Hamley calls her Fanny yeah. on accident over and over again. I would be shocked, yeah, you know, if I could talk to Elizabeth Gaskell and she told me, oh, no, I never thought of it. I think it's on purpose. <laughs> what character do you yeah. want to dive into first? Let's talk about Molly versus Fanny. Sorry for those who haven't read Mansfield Park, but Fanny Price is often the, mo- the least liked Jane Austen heroine, I think. And I'm always defending her, but when I compare her to Molly, there's really no defense. Right. She's kind of boring. And also a little bit of like Gaskell's history is kind of similar to Fanny Price's. Her mom died and she was left with relatives as a small child. Mm-hmm. And she really didn't have, she had no plan, you know, that she had no inheritance. She was kind of just left adrift like Fanny is. And that seems like that was a part of her life. So I, and you know, that was written in 1814 she was born 1810 i'm certain she read it that's true okay that's true but but anyhow both fanny and molly are really moral characters and a little bit of wallflowers and i think it's cool to have a book about a wallflower i think it's great but fanny she doesn't always stand up for herself and molly is amazing because she really does there's just so many moments where molly speaks up for herself that i'm like go molly yeah, and I think the the thing with Mansfield Park is Austin's whole point with the story is this is a character who's robbed of all agency. She has no control over where she lives, when she's picked up. The one decision she makes not to marry this shady guy, everybody bounces on her like, no, this is the wrong decision to make. And just holding on to that one, you know, choice that she's able to make, it it takes like all her strength. And I think Molly's given so much more opportunity to, yeah, to have agency to influence the people around her and to work as a protagonist. And yeah, interestingly, in some ways, she's pretty limited too. Some of the things Molly does that are pretty bold, uh, I mean, Fanny could have done them in some degree, but Molly's just brave and does it. Like, when she helps Cynthia get out of that engagement, she does have an appointment with an unmarried man, you mm-hmm. know, that, that's definitely not okay in their society. In fact, I think what's cool about Molly 
is that she is someone who she has this internal moral compass that her idea of right and wrong sometimes makes her, you know, she ignores what society wants her to That's do. That's so true. To do what she thinks is the right thing to do. And I love that talk she has with her father after the whole town is talking about her negatively. And he's like, you know, if you don't clear this up, you're going to have like a bad reputation forever. And she, her strength in that moment of like, well, then that's what it's going to be. Like, people are going to forget about this, but I'm not going to betray Cynthia. You're like, you're just like, whoa, Molly, like, she's badass. <laughs> she really is. Yeah. And I feel like this is what Gaskell really succeeds at. She is the, like, ideal Victorian woman mm -hmm, in a way. Mm -hmm. And that she is, she's quiet and meek and has good manners. But then she just turns things on their head at, at moments. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's amazing. Another moment I really like is when she is with Lady Harriet and Lady Harriet makes fun of the Miss Brownings. And you know, we've all been there where somebody makes fun of a makes fun of a friend of ours. And I think I've defended my friends, but never the way Molly right. did. I mean, she just wow. She's just amazing. She's like, Oh, well, you know, I don't think you should visit them if you're gonna talk about them like that. I forgot that that happened and when I read it in the book I was like Molly like she's like five classes above you like don't you talk to her that way like you're gonna get in trouble but then Harriet's like girl you're right and I was like oh wow like both of these characters are yeah. really awesome in that interaction between them it also just says so much about the class structure of Gaskell's time and mm -hmm. well earlier the 30s Mm -hmm. without it being boring like she does so much through character interactions that it has some kind of socioeconomic or political effect of what she's writing about yeah like a good example of that is lord cumner oh you still know the men who are like lord cumner but it's different because we don't have quite especially in the u.s we don't have quite the same uh rankings or whatever mm -hmm. but how he's always cracking jokes that nobody think nobody thinks are funny <laughs> or <laughs> there's there's some comments in there about his conversation and no you know nobody quite knows what he's saying but he doesn't realize it and he's just a happy you know yeah. he's just happy to go around and <laughs> be bumbling and and it, he's likable enough but he's also sort of not that with it there's also that great moment which is in the movie and in the book where he can't add i think it's 18 plus 18 oh i don't know yes. if you caught that that so reminded me of uh, Charlotte Bartlett in Room with a View when they're trying to figure out the change yeah, yeah. and they can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, we got off topic a little bit about, but, but yeah, I love Molly. Molly is just an amazing character. Molly has so many relatable moments. Like when she buys that brown gingham dress and I'm like reading it like that doesn't sound <laughs> like that doesn't sound pretty yes and like she thinks she looks so good in it <laughs> I love it because we all did that we right all did like, that, I don't yes. know <laughs> you you get something I just remember like middle school picking out my own clothes oh, and thinking they were the best <laughs> and I was so stylish and I feel like often in books the heroine she's just often so capable in everything you know and it's so fun because molly is capable but she makes mistakes like that yeah i love that there's a scene between roger and molly and it's when he comes home for the first time they see each other and she's wearing she's wearing her best dress which like 
that purple like checkered dress she has on in the show mm-hmm. is just perfect mm-hmm. it looks so horrible mm-hmm. but it also illustrates kind of what you said about middle school and high school of this like being stuck in this weird in-between phase between being a kid and being an adult because she walks up to him to shake his hand and he's he bows to her you know because she's now old enough that they shouldn't be touching anymore and then she's like oh yeah that's what i should Mm -hmm. be doing and it's it's just one of those perfect moments of like it's so weird to now be growing up and having to act differently they do such a great job in that movie of capturing some of the things that are in the book one thing that that's a great example but one thing comes to mind i feel like a huge theme of this book is that the women know better than the men (laughs) you know (laughs) That Mr. Gibson, the you know the men of science, there's the men of science, but then the women's gut instincts tend to be better. Mm-hmm. Like you know, Mr. Gibson really doesn't make a very good choice in his second wife, and Roger's first choice <laughs> to fall in love with is not the best choice either. Likewise, there's that example I mentioned about adding the math, and it's Lady Cumner who corrects yep. Lord Cumner on it. I don't know how it was received at the time or if people even noticed it because it's pretty subtle, but that in the book, the women really kind of are the ones who knows what's going on. And they're also the ones who are pushing everyone to shed some of these social differences. Lady Harriet recognizes that it's ridiculous that just because of their birth, she should consider herself above the Miss Brownings. The person that really sticks out is the new Mrs. Gibson who tries so hard to hold on to all these conventions and thinks it makes her more worldly when the whole town is, you know, laughing at her, her daughters having to come out, you know, all these traditional things that, that are so affected. Yeah. She's definitely hanging on to the old, the old Mm -hmm. ways. And not for the right reason. (laughs) No, no. She is a delicious villain. I think I, I watched part of it with my son who just like for him, just every scene she was in, he was just laughing because she's <laughs> she's horrible and and so funny and she has so little insight into herself, you know. Oh man, yeah. But there's also another moment just to go back to Molly for one more time when she finds out that Cynthia and Roger got engaged that that like strength she has to like keep it together until she like gets to a room and and cries i'm like i don't know if i would have been able to do that (laughs) i know i still just love molly so much i'm almost like i can't believe she held that together so well she's so saintly but but yet at the same time guest gal like (laughs) makes her have like the blackberry juice around her mouth you know it's like another one of those moments of like of course like when you look like a hot mess like something like this gonna (laughs) (laughs) well well i mean molly's the girl who doesn't know who like her heart is true but she has no idea how to date or flirt and i think most people fall in that category (laughs) right i don't know (laughs) Like there's like one out of every 20 who like know how to do that. And all the rest of us are just kind of bumbling around, but it's really <laughs> apparent in that scene that she has blackberries all over her face. It's great. Or I think her lips have blackberries on it. And it's no wonder that to some degree, Roger thought of her as younger. And Roger is an interesting character too, because 
I don't know if I'm that into the casting in the show because he is described as kind of a slow and, you know, big man. And especially, like, I love when he comes back at the end with that beard. And I feel like they tried to yeah. do that, but then, like, shaved it off right away. And I was like, I like that as part of his character progression of, like, no, he's, like, older That's now. That's funny. I noticed that, too. I wish they'd kept yeah. the beard, too. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, he's. I really like the guy who played Roger, but I still wanted someone just a little less pretty because yeah. you want him to be that guy who's handsome, but you don't realize he's handsome to like the second glance or third yeah. or something like that. Roger's a great character. And and also, this is where the comparing it to um, Mansfield Park, he really shines because Edmund's the worst. But <laughs> but, you know, he, he does go for the wrong girl and we can forgive him. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I think that's because, you know, he doesn't see that Molly is in love with him. But, you know, Molly doesn't really see that either, which is that's one of so the more true. interesting things about this book. Uh, he doesn't do some of the things Edmund does to her because he's in love. He doesn't really neglect Molly that I can think of at all. That's true. Yeah. And he's a man of science. And I think that's fun. I think Gaskell is related to Charles Darwin. And he was sort of a Charles Darwin type character. Oh, I had no idea. I think what works in this story, and I, again, I don't know, but it feels like everyone's based a little bit off of someone Gaskell knew, and hmm. they just feel like real people. There's this authenticity to each character, and that's what makes it such a fun book. Yes, I think when it comes to writing humanity, Gaskell's just got it down, especially in Wives and Daughters. She just mm -hmm. nailed it. I think the only thing I would warn readers of with that age of discovery is there's some really strong racist language in the book that's pretty mm -hmm. painful to read nowadays um let's talk about hyacinth because <laughs> i love how <laughs> gaskell sets the tone with the very first interaction she has with molly is kind of how their whole relationship is gonna go and that's when she asks molly what yes. is your dad like like i have to know all his likes and dislikes <laughs> And Molly says only one thing, which is that he's particular about mealtimes. And right away, like, she immediately admonish admonishes his food choices. And it's one of the first things she changes in the household, too. Mm -hmm. She's so two-faced. Well, we also get to see her character in the very, very beginning, when Molly first meets her. Yes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Hyacinth puts forth this idea that she saved Molly and Molly's like, uh, no, you forgot that she, they're at they're at this garden party at the Cumner's house, and Molly feels ill. They bring her inside to rest in Hyacinth's room, and she says, "Please, please, you know, make sure that people don't they don't leave me. I don't want to be stuck here." And Hyacinth forgets all about her, and she wakes up in this strange house, and they all think she should be so happy that she's at this grand manor, and all she wants is to be home with her father. And that's why when she first finds out her dad's engaged to this woman, she's like, eh, I don't I don't have the best feeling about yeah. her. And, and there is a funny part where Roger tries to give her like advice, like it's not good to prejudge people. And she's like, OK, I'm going to try not to. But I really think this woman is selfish. And she was right. She was right. Which is kind of a theme in the book is that Molly's judgment tends to be right. And most people don't listen to her and there's a line in i have a lot of quotes from chapter 28 but it's after the ball 
And it's when Roger comes over and Mrs. Gibson gets very annoyed with him coming over all the time because he's the younger <laughs> brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the ball of the previous night and it says Mrs. Gibson, it is true, was ready to go over the ground as many times as one liked, but her words were always like ready-made clothes and never fitted individual thoughts. Anybody might have used them and yes. with a change of proper names, they might have served to describe any ball. And later on, Molly observes that anything she says was said in a sweet false tone, which of late had gone through Molly like the scraping of a slate pencil on a slate. Like, you know this woman just from reading these lines. Mm -hmm. Back to what you said about her and Mr. Gibson. Maybe you have some insight into this. Cheese. What did she have against cheese? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gibson wants cheese. And she's like, oh, no, no cheese in my house. And I, I'm like, is this some... Um historical thing I don't know. or it's very strange we i was telling my daughter i was gonna watch it and she said oh every time i see wives and daughters i just want to have roasted cheese <laughs> because there's this wonderful scenes where molly and her dad roast cheese over the fire they do it before he gets married and then when mrs gibson goes out of town they're like haha now we can have cheese again that scene is always so sweet but always so sad because you know it's gonna be over when they come back. Yeah. And it's because Mr. Gibson's overall pretty wise, but he just didn't do the best job picking a wife. And then also there's that realization of him finding out like, oh, I made a bad choice. And how Molly observes that the marriage really only gets worse after he finds out because he no longer has any respect for his wife. And there's that line in there about like, oh, she wished that her father would see some of her stepmom's ridiculousness and now she wish she could take it back and go back to the way they were before which is also quite sad that's one thing i just really love about molly is she she has this sort of selflessness she just really does care about other people and wants them to be happy so she kind of wants them to see stuff but that's why it's it's weird i, I can't think of another book where there's a character who's so in love with another character in a love triangle and yet kind of wants it to work out for Roger and Cynthia. That's but, so true. But it's because she really does love Roger and she loves Cynthia. Do you ever wonder how this book would have ended if Mr. Gibson went and proposed to Miss Phoebe instead? I always wonder about <laughs> that. Yeah, I feel like that would have been a better choice. It's just when he comes over to tell them that he's getting remarried and, you know, they think he's going to propose to Miss Phoebe. And it's, and mm -hmm. I'm always so sad when he doesn't work out. Because they would have been really good. Um, I know. For Molly. Ugh. You know, he said he was getting married for Molly, but I think he really did it because, you know, ah, Hyacinth was very pretty. That is such a good so. point. I didn't think about that. <laughs> I think so. I actually think that's one of the fun things about this book is it has this sort of moral feel. Molly's amazing in her like honesty and her selflessness, but there's still it's still like really grounded in reality and people are still making decisions the way people mm -hmm. really do in real life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it would have been sensible for him to go Miss Browning's, but yeah, the man goes for the pretty woman mm -hmm. and and then he kind of regrets it. I also love the energy of the scene between the Miss Brownings when Phoebe runs back to tell her sister all the gossip about Molly. <laughs> I don't know. It's just so funny, that dynamic between the sisters and also how loyal they are to Molly even after that. It's, it always warms my heart. I love how much they love Molly. 
I don't think we can quite relate to it, right? When they come home and say, Molly Gibson has ruined herself or ruined her character mm -hmm. by being seen alone with this man. It's, it's such a, they just had different roles than we do at our time. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that Molly could see which roles were like, you know what? I'm going to break that one. You know, it's not good for Cynthia to marry, marry this guy. I'm going to break it to help her out. Yeah, that's true. I'm going back to Mr. Gibson's like bad choice of marrying um, Hyacinth. I think the one moment where he is also kind of a bad dad is when he tells his daughter that he's getting remarried. And he's so harsh with her and he gives her no time to process. He doesn't explain anything. You know, she's not like jumping for joy. She's pretty confused and he just rides off and kind of leaves mm -hmm. her to deal with her feelings. And I, I don't know. I thought that was pretty mean. I remember really loving him and I still do really like him, but he has these moments where he doesn't shine. <laughs> and that's one of them. For sure. There's a few other times where he kind of is gruff with her yeah. without finding out the whole story. And yet he is so devoted to Molly. I don't know. I think that does feel very authentic, though. This father mm -hmm. figure who isn't quite perfect all mm -hmm. the time. The one thing I found odd, and I'm, I think this was on purpose and Gaskell was commenting on, but as a person from a different time, it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around. Like when... Roger's talking to him that, you know, he loves Molly. He mentions to Roger, uh, well, you know, she does have some money that she knows nothing about. Like, I don't know. That seemed <laughs> like weird that she didn't know about these things. Oh, and, you know, she never knows about the note that kind of spurred him to get married, that that Mr. Cox had a crush on Molly. It does seem strange to, even as a wife, or even, you know, you have this money, but you're not allowed access to it, and you don't know about it, or, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. It's not something we can relate to, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I think that's probably just the way it was. I, and maybe, maybe Victorian times, nobody would have thought that Mr. Uh, Gibson had any flaws that we see. But, oh, that's a good point. You know. Like, was he this... A really good father figure to readers who were, you know, reading this book at the time. That's that's an interesting. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know because his the moments where he loses te loses his temper are, are short enough, and there's a lot of really mm -hmm. good stuff in between. I just don't know. Like I said, I wouldn't. I, no one should be judged on their worst moment, but he does have a few moments where you're like, oh, come on, Mr. Gibson. I think what really kind of also offsets that to me in the 1999 series is the actor playing that Mr. Gibson, every time he looks at his daughter, he just has so much love in his eyes. Even when he doesn't say anything, mm -hmm. there's no dialogue, just the way he looks at her, you just can feel it. But you know that I feel like him doing that is accurate to the book. Cause you do feel like Mr. Gibson is quite fond of Molly. Yeah. Very devoted to her. Yeah. Actually we have other men who lose their temper who I did really like, this is a flawed character that I just loved, was Lord Ham or Squire Hamley. Yes. Um, <laughs> he's a very flawed character. <laughs> oh, man. Like, he goes all book, like, talking about how French people are not uh, human. And then at the end, he's like, why didn't my son tell me he married a French lady? Like, I would have been cool. It's like, no, you wouldn't have. <laughs> 
he he does seem to yes. lack a certain self-awareness sometimes uh, yeah you know and we have talked about this before in other books for maybe a lot of problems could be solved if somebody just said something you know like maybe if roger hadn't been so honorable and just said hey guess what dad my brother's married you know right. One of my favorite lines is by Squire Hamley, where he's talking about, he's talking about Hyacinth. And he says, your wife and I did not hit it off the only time I ever saw her. I won't say she was silly, but I think one of us was silly and it was not me. <laughs> That's such a great line. <laughs> I know. Maybe it's for that line alone. No, no, he has some really good lines. He also says one of my very favorite things in the whole book where Molly suggests that Osborne's French wife will die of a broken heart. And he says, it's not so easy to break one's heart. Sometimes I wished it were, but one has to go on living all the appointed days. Hmm. I just, I love that because, you know, he's, He's dealt with a lot of grief. And actually, this book deals with a lot of grief. A lot. Honestly. Uh, yeah, there's a scene between Mr. Preston and Squire Hamley, where Squire Hamley runs up to him <laughs> and is like, your men have been doing stuff on my land. And Mr. Preston's like, I'm looking into it right now. And we're going to get it sorted out. If, you know, you need any compensation for what they've done, we're going to get it ironed out. And Squire Hamley is like, just starts a fight with him. And I'm still not sure why. And it's interesting because you don't like Mr. Preston. And you know, yeah. he's, the, yeah. he's the villain. Mr. Preston is kind of... Yeah, Mr. Preston sh is on the side of right, really, in this case. Yeah. But yeah, I, you're rooting for Squire Hamley. I don't know if I am. I Because Roger tries to kind of lead him away. And Squire Hamley's like, don't, don't treat me as if I'm a child. And man, if I had been Roger, I would have been like, you're acting like a child. <laughs> Yeah, Squire Hamley is, I think, one of the more interesting characters just because he's so contrary and so opinionated, but then also so in love yeah. with his wife and has so much affection for Molly mm -hmm. and his sons and his grandson when he finds out, which is something that I was mm -hmm. really missing at the end of the miniseries. They never quite talked about that he had grown to really love his daughter-in-law. And I wish they had gone into that a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, that's not show. There is some of the affection for the grandson. Yes, the grandson, yeah. And I feel like Squire Hamley is, like, Gaspel's using him of showing kind of the old guard being brought into the future. Yeah. It's not pretty, but he does come to accept, you know, that he has a half-French grandson mm -hmm. and a French daughter-in-law. And, and he goes from not wanting any of his sons. He's worried about one of his sons falling in love with Molly Gibson, who isn't, you know, he wants his sons to marry this, you know, maybe Lady Harriet, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. to to begging Roger, please, please, can't you marry her? You know, so I think maybe that's why we love him is because he does change and he adapts to letting go of some of the class structure. Um, I also wanted to go into Osborne a little bit more. I think... As much as I love Tom Hollander, he was a little bit miscast for me here. Totally agree. Totally agree. Every time I watch it, I'm like, ah, you're doing a great job, but you shouldn't be Osborne. The way Osborne is described in the book, nobody's not going to know what I'm talking about, but I imagine him kind of like the Prince Regent, George IV. There's a portrait of him by Thomas Lawrence where he has this like 
he's looking to the side and he has this curly, you know, dark hair and he has this kind of Byronic look about him. That was when he was younger. And that's always how I pictured Osborne, just this image of beauty of that time. And I feel like Tom Hollander just is not that person, which is fine, but you know, that's just not it. Do you know, do you know who I think would do it? Wouldn't have worked at the time, but I think Timothy Chalamet would be a good Yes, Osborne. that's true. Yes. There's so much comment on how thin he is, yes. how thin and pretty he is. And actually I, I had, I looked it up because there's that Roger is, they call him Christian, muscular Christianity hadn't come into vogue, is mentioned just in passing. And <sighs> so I guess at the time it was considered being very thin and aristocratic aristocratic and being muscly was not considered a good you know that wasn't in style right. at the time but osborne is also so aloof like when roger asks him like do you have your marriage license can we like look it over and osborne's like oh, i don't know i don't have it and i'm like oh get it together <laughs> you just want to slap him around sometimes <laughs> yes was we've been talking about the hamleys I'm thinking that this is why we love Roger and we forgive Roger for falling in love with Cynthia is Roger is also long suffering and has to deal with a lot of nonsense in his family. Yes. And he's kind of the one who holds everyone together. Yes. He doesn't deserve Cynthia. You can't really care for him or value him. So I think that's one of the reasons you root for him because he is so patient with his father and kind to his brother. Yes. And pays for all of his brother's, you know, expenses and... Yeah. Yeah, he's a good guy. It, he's the one who's making sure that this son of his brother's inherits what, if he didn't do this, Roger would have inherited. He's really selfless. There's also the scene of Squire Hamley carrying his dead son, which in the show, it just broke my heart. And I'd seen the show before, yes. and then when I got to that part in the book, I forgot that she kills off Osborne. And I was like sad all over again just crying listening to it there's a great part after uh, mrs hamley dies and i just stopped and paused and i thought about it it talks about what happens to people when they go through grief and it says but the keystone of the family arch was gone and the stones of which it was composed began to fall apart it is always sad when a sorrow of this kind seems to injure the character of the mourning survivors yet perhaps this injury may be only temporary or superficial the judgment so constantly passed upon the way people bear their loss of those whom they have deeply loved appear to be even more cruel and wrongly meted out than human judgments generally are. Mm. I just really love that idea of the, you know, the judgments people make as they watch other people mourn can sometimes be the cruelest thing they can do. Mm. I know that when my mom died, I really felt exactly what she's describing there, that the family kind of falls apart and there really was some <laughs> crazy stuff that happened. And definitely the hardest thing were, were people who meant well, who would say things in judgment without knowing the whole situation. Mm. I loved Gaskell's insight into that particular part of grief. Yeah, that's that's a really great quote. There's also, right before Squire Hamley's wife dies, she is played by Penelope Wilton on the show. And she has a line in the show that's totally in the book, and I missed it. It didn't register for me until I saw the actress have that line of dialogue. And it's when she says, I've made such an idol of my beautiful Osborne, and he turns out to have feet of clay, which is another really great 
expression that kind of is really like a different type of grief, which is not losing a person, but losing the idea of a person, you know, when they find out that Osborne mm -hmm. is really not everything that they put him on a pedestal and you know he's not living up to the expectations and what that does to the family is another sad part of the story yeah i think maybe that's why we end up liking the hamley so much is that yeah, maybe if you were going to compare squire hamley to mrs gibson is that she doesn't have any insight into her problems but eventually mm -hmm. Squire Hamley's like, oh, I really messed up. And and also Mrs. Hamley too, I really messed up. And so, the, you know, they're kind of the hope for England and for the future is to say, oh, wow, some of the things we've done were wrong. Let's change them. Yeah. Now that you compare the two, I'm also realizing how differently they speak of their dead loved ones. Because the way Mrs. Kirkpatrick yes. always talks about Mr. Kirkpatrick in this very accusatory way and how it changes as the novel progresses. <laughs> and every time Mr. Gibson does something she perceives as unjust, she's like, my former husband would have never done this to me when in the beginning we had a totally different image of this person and mm -hmm. how she felt about her, you know, previous It's basically he should have died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare he go and die? But it just really, I mean, this is to this book is that it deals with these really heavy moments, and yet it's still funny. That's true. Yeah, there's always there's always a humor in it. I had another question about, I guess, being a doctor. I I tried to Google this, like, what was the average community size or village size and life expectancy at the time? And I I found nothing. <laughs> like, I don't know why there's no data on this, but. Mr. Gibson is out working all the time, nonstop. Like, I don't know how many mm -hmm. people are in this village, but everyone is sick at every moment of the day. I'm like, how can people be so sick or injured? Like, why are they calling for a doctor all the time? Like, I don't, I don't know. I was very confused about that as a modern reader. And I was wondering, oh, would somebody at the time have known? Like, oh, he has to take care of these many people or ride this far or... I got a little lost on that. I don't know. I um, Since my husband is a doctor, that's another reason I really related to this book. And I guess there's just always sick, sick people. I also figured that a lot of his time had to do with his travel. But as a side note, I know that for me and both my daughters really relate to this book because of the long hours he hmm. he works as a doctor. That's That's been our experience. My husband does particularly cancer patients. So he deals a lot with dying. And so sort of Miss Miss Gibson's comments like, well, you know, if they're dying, what good can he do? And Molly's like, well, he can still help them and be there mm -hmm. and, and be there at the last moments. Mm -hmm. That I really relate to because I've had many events in my life where my husband has been with a dying patient. And I don't know, we all value it in our home and think it's important. Yeah, that's really good insight. Mm. I think also something that the adaptation does here is it cuts out Molly being sick at the end after she returns from... Yeah, I noticed that. Um, the Hamleys, she gets sick again. And I feel like this is... I don't know if people were just sick all the time back then. I'm not sure. But that was one criticism I had of North and South, too, that everybody is always sick and is dying constantly. <laughs> I think that's accurate. You think it's accurate? I think so. I think people died more, you know. This is pre-penicillin. 
and yeah. life expectancy was shorter. My husband has a phrase, he, he always says that there's no death in America. And what he means by that is that we are sort of spoiled with this feeling that we're invincible mm. because we do have pretty good medicine. But we're not that far removed from when life expectancy was just a lot shorter. Interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it was a good choice to not have as many instances of people being sick in the show. I think that got, it gets kind of like repetitive. Yes. Well, and it, it is good. It is good because the ending, you know, the, there is no final chapter. So they, they kind of create their own final chapter. And it's that Molly goes back to Africa with Roger. Uh, it doesn't make sense with Molly being as sickly as she was in the book. That's true. Yeah. I do see what you're saying, that maybe sickness almost seems like a device, you know. Right. And then so-and-so right. got sick. And th there is one illness in there that I really want my husband to, and not that he'll be able to, I don't know. But there's Cynthia gets very distraught, and she's distraught because she has the secret engagement with Mr. Preston. And she's not doing so well. And... Mr. Gibson kind of thinks there's something going on. He he says, will you share with me? And she's like, no. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to give you the tonic. And he gives her some tonic and it makes her better. And I'm like, what did he give right. her? Right. right. <laughs> Since she wasn't really sick, did he give her some sort of drug? You know, some yeah. sort of pre-Prozac? Did he give her opium? Like what? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> like what was this tonic? Yeah. Speaking of Cynthia, I have so many thoughts about this character. I think she must be the most interesting, nuanced, well-crafted character of all of literature. Like, the character drawing yes. for Cynthia is yes. just phenomenal. She's fascinating. But there's a line at the ball where Mr. Preston gets really upset that she won't dance with him. And he says... If Molly Gibson needs advice on how to refuse a partner, she can ask Miss Kirkpatrick. And Cynthia says, you forget, Mr. Preston, that Molly actually wants to dance with her partners, which is such a sick burn. <laughs> like, I love all her little quibs and her humor and how she deals with life. Well, you know, and maybe this is why we like Mr. Gibson is because Cynthia loves him. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. she doesn't really love her dad, but she's like, OK, you have been more like a father to me than anyone and she says she loves him more than Roger. Oh, that's true. And so I yeah. think that's where we think. We think, okay, yeah, he did lose his temper, but he must have most of the time been a pretty good guy. I just also think it's so interesting how the relationship between the parent and the child is examined through Cynthia and her mother and how so much of Cynthia's behavior stems from a place of being completely neglected. And all the humor she uses with her mom is like when Molly's really outraged at something her stepmother has said, Cynthia's way of dealing with that has been to kind of make fun of it. And it's this defense mechanism that she's developed. Mm -hmm. That that to me is also one of those really interesting relationships between Cynthia and her mom. Well, Cynthia is a great character because she has insight. That's how she's different from her mom, yeah. right? And I kind of what you're talking about, one of my favorite lines in there is she says, I wish I could love people as you do, Molly. Don't you, said the other in surprise? No, a good number of people love me, I believe, or at least they think they do. But I ne never seem to care much for anyone. And then she says, I do believe I love you, little Molly, whom I've only known for mm. 10 days. But I think Cynthia's, like, not loving people is a defense yeah. mechanism, right? Like, 
She's been so hurt by her mom, who's just a selfish woman and doesn't see herself. She doesn't see herself as a selfish woman at all. She sees herself as the victim always. But that Cynthia protects herself by not caring for people. But she, she sees that lacking in herself, unlike her mom. Oh, that's true. That that self-awareness there. And, and she must have been mm-hmm. so hurt too and upset by watching her mom care more about this family, like the Cumners that she's working for and the kids over there than, yes. you know, her own daughter. Her mom cares more about social class and rank and all that than her own daughter. Yeah. Which yeah. is sort of Hyacinth's downfall. But I also feel like so many so. of the other characters really misunderstand Cynthia and don't really see her for who she is. And that mainly includes for me actually Roger and Molly because they both keep pushing her towards, you know, being in love. And she tells them over and over again that her brain isn't wired that way. Like maybe she's like the only aromantic you know representation classic (laughs) literature but she keeps telling them like no i'm not gonna love roger that way and she says that to him too and he's just so overwhelmed by his own idea of her which he finally admits to at the end that both of them kind of have this clouded vision of who cynthia is when she really tells them all the time and even the man she marries at the end she's like I think this marriage is going to be great and we're good for each other, but I am not going to be able to feel the same way you feel about me. Like she's always honest with people about Mm -hmm. that. That's interesting. I don't know about Roger because I'm going to say, well, he just wants to be in love with her, but it's always struck me as very odd that Molly's telling Cynthia to love Roger. I don't get it. I think I get it. Yeah. Maybe out of like a place of jealousy like, cause it's so easy, easy for her to yeah, be in love maybe. with him, and she like, like, what do you mean you're not in love with him? Like, he's the greatest, you know. Maybe he comes from yeah. a place like that. Actually, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Amy being mad at Joe for not loving Laurie, you know. So maybe it's because she is already in love yeah. with him. That was one thing I, I, I don't know. I wasn't ever in a situation like that, but I'm like, ah, would I be that altruistic, or would I be like? oh, you don't like him? Well, then stop hanging right. out with it, you know, right. follow the engagement right now. <laughs> I I think that's it. I don't know. Yeah. But you're right that people don't acknowledge that that's just okay for Cynthia. I, I love Cynthia. I feel like Gaskell did such a great job of making her like the villain, but not the villain, you know? Well, she has this... She has this moral overtone when Cynthia tells her story about what happened with Mr. Preston and that she was totally alone and Mm -hmm. neglected and had no money. And he was the person who was kind of supposed to be her friend, you know, and kind of entrusted Mm -hmm. with her care. And he totally takes advantage of her. And she, you know, doesn't really know what to do in that situation. And then later, through Molly and through also Cynthia's own dialogue... It keeps being said that what she did was a really bad choice, you know, wasn't the right thing for a lady to do. Yet, I I feel like Gaskell kind of has it both ways because she puts that like moral message Mm -hmm. in there. But at the same time, when we listen to Cynthia's story, we're like, well, what else would she have done? You know, it's this clever way of maybe infusing it with like a bit of feminism of like, well, these are the opportunities available to women. And Cynthia had no choice but to 
you know, go along with this man. Yeah, you can't see me, but I'm just nodding furiously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I feel like this is where this book is so brilliant and it's so fun because it feels like it's being this Sunday school moral, but then you stop and think yeah. about it and you're like, no, it's really pointing out that this Cynthia had really so few choices. Yeah. And in a way, Molly ends up being Cynthia's big defender. Yeah. You know? It's great that she does. But it is weird because it goes both ways because you do feel a little bit like, Cynthia, how could you let Molly take the brunt of all this? That's true. But but again, in Cynthia's defense, she she didn't quite understand how the gossip would be. It's a tough situation. And thank God for Lady Harriet. Oh, man. We talked briefly about Lady Harriet, but oh, I love Lady Harriet. She's great in so many ways. And like we said, I guess you've already said this, but I'm just going to say it again. I just love how when Molly chastens her, she's like, yep, you're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> that Those are the people who move ahead in the book are those who are humble enough to say, yep, I was wrong and then try to change. Yes. And she, also when she kind of confronts Mr. Preston and is like, you're kind of letting all these yeah. rumors fly about. You have to tell me what's up. And he's like, oh, fine. You know, <laughs> like she's not going to take no for an mm-hmm. answer or be like a prim lady. Well, he says, this, I shouldn't be talking to a lady about this. And she's like, it's already started. So go. <laughs> she's so great. Yeah, she ha- actually has a lot of power in the community, even though she is a woman. But through her class alone, you kind of see what she's able to accomplish, whereas characters like Molly and Cynthia are helpless in certain situations. It is an interesting book at, at how people use their power to do good things. Yes. Uh, and maybe that's where, again, I, I come to that Molly, if you put Molly and Fanny Price next to each other, Molly Gibson uses her limited power to do more mm. good. That's a good comparison. I also love when um, the Cumners are late to the ball and everybody's so disappointed. <laughs> and Lady Harriet's the first one to yes. say, like, I'm so sorry. You guys were waiting for us. Like... <laughs> This lady was taking forever to yes. get dressed. And then also when the other community member doesn't know she's addressing Lady Harriet and is like, you know, this duchess isn't yes. even wearing her diamonds. And Lady Harriet's, you know what? You are right. It's just so funny to me. Well, Lady Harriet understands that they are a commodity, right? They, I mean, this is, you know, you started this podcast talking uh, about the royals, but she understands that this is who they are and they owe something to the public because they you know these are the people who vote who keep on voting in that's so true lord cumner i have another question did ian glenn work for you as mr preston yeah i think so yeah did he not for you in fact i was thinking maybe the whole reason that one scene i was rooting for squire hamley is he just did such a good job of looking villainous i think that was my issue with it because he is in his late 30s when this is filmed. When in the book, the character's mm-hmm. about 25. He's described as very charming. You know, he's young. And Ian Glenn in the film version, mm. and maybe it was just written this way or he was directed this way, but he's just always menacing and scary, which is like fine if that's a change that mm-hmm. they wanted to make. But I liked Gaskell having a little bit more nuance and throwing his charm in there and how he's able to kind of wrap people around mm-hmm. his fingers but he's really not a good guy at all you you make a great point i agree with you totally convinced and also that is important because molly perceiving 
that she really can see right through him is more impressive when he's more charming. He's probably more like Wickham, you know? Yes, or yes, Willoughby, yes, yes. You know, yeah. somebody who has some charm. Whereas you do see him and immediately you're just like, yikes. Right, right. <laughs> that guy's scary. Right. <laughs> um, my other question is, why did they put that short mullet wake on top of Rosamund Pike's head at the end of the movie. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) Just so she would outshine Molly is my guess. I don't know. What is that? It's like obviously like not her hair. Like it's sitting on top of her hair. Like it's just why I, because she slays like for the rest of the show, she has these wild outfits on. She always looks like a million bucks. And then towards the end, it's just like, what, where do we get this wig and why did nobody immediately burn it when you found it? <laughs> they do such a good job at the ball and Roger seeing Molly again and just like his expression uh, of like, you can see him like, oh, why didn't I see this yeah. before? She's amazing, yeah. you know? And, <laughs> and, then, and then she's, and then Lady Harriet's going all around with weird hair. <laughs> so I don't know. Everything else is so perfect. One thing we need to talk about is that scene, the rain scene, which is kind of in the book, but they improve it in the movie. Well, in the book, he was going to go away for the thing she mapped out is he's going away for a few more months. He finally comes back with that rose. Yes. She gives him and that tension at the end of the series of them just standing in the rain and they can't touch each other. It's Oh, my God. Six feet apart. (laughs) My my husband was, he didn't watch all the series with me, but I'm like, oh, I'm on the last one. He's like, oh, yes. That's like my favorite. I love that oh. scene with all my heart. And it's so good. And I was thinking in the book, it's pretty similar. In the book, he's going away and he's standing outside the window, standing in the rain, just watching her until she notices and waves goodbye. I also love in that scene um, of Molly looking at the window and like trying to get that last glimpse of Roger and you know, she can't take it anymore and she's running out in the rain. And the whole time, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Gibson is like waving her handkerchief like, oh, he's waving at me. <laughs> she is so funny. <laughs> she has no insight. Like she never no. sees everything's about her. It doesn't even cross her mind that Roger is saying goodbye to Molly. Um, Another question I had was, so the person who plays Lady Cumner also plays Mr. Darcy's aunt, Lady Catherine de Burke. Wow, I did not realize that. Me neither. Which Pride and Prejudice? The one with Colin Firth. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, it's because she has that crazy accent. What is she doing in this? Because that's not her normal voice. But in this whole show, she talks like the bishop from The Princess Bride. Like, marriage. I think that that was in style with the aristocracy. I feel like it's mentioned in the book and it's mentioned in some other books. I totally missed that. Okay. And it's so funny because she has a daughter named Heliot. Hell yeah. <laughs> One of my last little notes that I had about the show was Gaskell sets these stories within the scenes of domesticity. And I feel like whoever was arranging the scenes in the show was highly aware of that because the way actors are arranged in a scene, there's a f- so many shots where I'm like, this could be a portrait. Even Squire Hamley's house, it feels so old and outdated and it has all this dark wood paneling and it's such a perfect representation of who this family is and I felt like that was so many of the interiors in the show that just represented the mood yeah like there's 
there's a wonderful scene I noticed. It's when Mrs. Gibson is talking about that she found out she was eavesdropping and heard that Osborne was going to die. Oh, yes. But you have her working on her hairpiece. It's just a lovely scene. And yeah, they, I think they did such a great job showing the distinction of rank yes. through the different homes. Yeah. My only last note is I think it's amazing that we're talking about Gaskell at all when they were filming the show, uh, you know, in the areas that they were doing all the sets, people would walk up and be like, oh, what are you filming? And they'd be like, oh, Gaskell, wives and daughters. And reportedly very few people knew who she was. And it's not until recently that she's kind of finally come back into the light and taken her rightful place as one of the great Victorian novelists. And when I compare her to a contemporary like Dickens, I feel like he has so many characters that are very over the top and more like mm -hmm. symbols or caricatures of what he's trying mm -hmm. to convey. And to me, Gaskell just has a little bit more of like a more lighter human touch that I can relate to more easily. So agree. So agree. And I think before this last reading of Gaskell, I would have said my favorite author from that time period was George Eliot. And I really do like George Eliot. But uh, Gaskell has such a light touch and such a yeah. great sense of humor yeah. that I feel like she's even better than Eliot. And that's why I love great art where it's thoroughly entertaining but she is talking about some important issues. I felt like reading the book was just such a great experience in that it was fun, it was entertaining, but it did give me lots to think about. It also kind of made me want to be a better person in some ways, mm. you know? I felt like it it really made me want to be a better person in being kinder and humbler and more less likely to judge, which is sort of her take on that's what England needs to move ahead. That's a good thought. <laughs> I agree with that. I'm so glad I finally read this book. Like, it was always such a intimidating mammoth. And then I just breezed through it. Like, those 30 hours went by like that. Like, it was such an easy read. And you're laughing. I felt like I was laughing so much. That's probably the one thing I wish is that I had underlined a few more of the humorous lines yeah. <laughs> to share with you. In some ways, it reminds me of Austen's really biting satire. Yes, especially through Cynthia. Like when she's like, oh, we can't, yes. we're not allowed to talk to people yet. We're not out yet. We, we don't know how to act yet. <laughs> like, Molly, you only took two steps at a time up the stairs. I can do three steps at a time. Like, Just their little comments. They're just so cute. Yes. It just goes so easily in from the very serious and heartbreaking uh -huh. to these other moments. And it's, it's just beautiful. I love this book. That is such a great thing to say because it, it's never arresting. Like I'm never brought up short by a really sudden tonal shift. Like what you said about her weaving mm -hmm. that in and out so beautifully, that's true. And not every author can do that. No, no. And the other thing she's really good at, I feel like, is she has some beautiful um, nature writing in it too. Yeah. yeah. But not too much, just the right amount. Yeah. Thank you for talking to me about this book. Where can people find you and tell us about all the things you're doing? I've written a book called Deleted, and you can find it on Amazon. But look for Ruth Mitchell. Someone else wrote a book called Deleted, and it is not by me. <laughs> <laughs> Politically, I don't really agree with it. So. Oh, now I have to Google it. <laughs> yeah, Google it. You'll be like, oh, yikes. And uh, I think it's hashtag deleted. My book is just deleted by Ruth Mitchell. And I also have other books I'm working on. 
you can, I also am on Instagram as literally.ruth.mitchell. And that's probably where I hang out the most. And I love talking about books. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you so much, Tabby. 